piece on the wide. What's up, guys? Thanks for tuning in. This episode is with Garen Hess of Consensus. Uh, this is definitely a good one. We dive deep into his company. It's fully remote, so it's a little bit different of a dynamic what you'll hear, but his advice, some of the stuff he says for you guys that want to grow businesses is pretty applicable. Uh, just some of the normal stuff. Don't forget to review, rate, and subscribe to the show if you like it. Also, follow my Instagram at Josh Chingus. It's where I post a lot of the podcast stuff. And if you want to watch the video of me and Garen, Obviously, the YouTube channels are where I post that stuff, and I'll link that in the show notes of this episode. Enjoy. All right, Garen, you ready to rock and roll? Ready to do it. Let's go. Let's do this. All right, Garen, so just quickly introduce yourself here so I know a little bit about you, your hobbies, and then uh, we can go from there. Yeah, so Garen Hess, founder and CEO of Consensus, which is interactive demo automation software that helps sales engineering teams inside software companies scale more effectively. And yeah, I'm married with three kids. Got married when I was 22. You know, my family's a lot of my life, but um, I just turned 50. So I've been married 28 years um, and we find ourselves as of just a few months ago, empty nesters, which is really bizarre. No so way. Really quick. <laughs> wow. That's got to be a crazy shift. <laughs> yeah, that's been nuts. But hobbies, uh, I love lots of things outdoors, skiing, mountain biking, hiking. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, I love to cook, which my wife loves because she hates to cook. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I'd say tennis and cycling are probably my biggest sort of outdoor things. Um, and I also love to sing. So I'm a no sideshow choir director. Yeah. Dang, I, I know that I saw just from research you had a, uh, was it a music, it was some sort of business that was dealing with the music industry. Is that correct? It was it was in that space? Yeah, so it was a nonprofit uh, okay. that I founded a few years ago called Witness Music. And um, yeah, it puts on a large scale musical production every Easter involving about 200 performers um, wow. in seven, seven different locations and in five different states. So hmm. I'm not as involved in it as I, I used to be, but uh, yeah, I, I love that organization and it's a, yeah. a passion of mine, but I don't have time to be involved very much anymore. Yeah. I think that everyone should touch on their passions, do whatever they need to do to kind of, you know, be involved in their, in their passions some way, even if they're running a business or have a job, I think it really helps you personally, mentally, emotionally, and in relationships as well. But so, Garen, to move on, obviously, there's a random question I think you knew is coming. And the one that I wanted to ask you from research, I saw, not sure what website it was, but I saw that it was a picture of your office, I think, here in American Fork. It was covered in, in, in sticky notes and balloons. And I didn't, oh. I couldn't find what, why that was, like, why that picture oh. came about. What, why did that happen? What was, what was the story behind that? Yeah, that was my that was a birthday, and a bunch of my okay. team just put sticky notes all over my office um, and covered it, <laughs> and uh, yeah, all kinds of weird stuff no <laughs> they would do on my birthdays. <laughs> That's what that was all about. Yeah, you got to keep the birthdays interesting when when you get older, because definitely you don't want to think about them <laughs> as you as you get older. <laughs> so, Garen, yeah. uh, to move on here with with the bulk of the interview, I want to get into obviously your business consensus here that you've been running in the present time. And as far as I know, it's been a seven year process. You started it seven years ago about. So going back to that beginning, I guess we can start off there. Tell us how you even came up with this idea, where where it came from. 
some of your goals in the beginning, where you wanted to take this, what your six month goals were, where kind of just everything yeah. in the beginning of, of how this came about. Tell us, tell us some of those, those stories. Well, this is my second technology startup. So my last one was purchased, it was called Rapid Intake, purchased in 2011. So I worked for that company that bought us, Calidus Cloud, for about a year and then just decided I wanted to do something different. Yeah. So left that company, I actually left some, some of my stock on the table just because I was so eager to go out and try something new. Wow. Figured I could grow uh, something new to be bigger value faster than that stock was growing at the time. Could have been a mistake because later that that company that bought us sold to SAP for two point eight billion dollars. No way. But uh, you know, from a financial <laughs> standpoint, but <laughs> but I but I I never regret doing that because I've I, I love this company and, and we're making amazing progress. So yeah. Um, but yeah, started that in uh, twenty thirteen, late twenty thirteen. Started wireframing. The the what what consensus does is it personalizes a video experience to a, pro, a prospective customer so that they can learn about somebody's software product in a personalized way, right? So yeah. the way, um, and then it tracks all this engagement in the back end and so on. So the way that that idea came about is in my last technology startup, we were inundated with leads. You know, we're getting seven, 800 leads a month uh, oh, and we're just a small team. And so we'd have to pick and choose who we were gonna demo for. And we started thinking, there's got to be a way to automate this demo process, right? I mean, everybody wants a demo. We do the same demo over and over. One day I was doing, I did six demos in a row back to back. And I just thought, I did the same demo six times. And I just kind of changed up the order, emphasized different things. It was pretty much the same demo. Yeah. So we just started experimenting and trying to figure that out then. And mm. uh, could never really get it. We were posting some videos on YouTube and whatever. But it never really worked very well. So that was just kind of stuck in my back pocket as a big problem that we couldn't solve. Hmm. So uh, when we got going in 2013, I just started sketching out how could, how could technology personalize a demo to somebody um, effectively and um, started showing some wireframes. 2014, hmm. um, started building it. And uh, yeah, so I mean, there's this, there's this process. One thing I'll say back then is I read this book, the one thing really changed my perspective about what I should be doing when. Hmm. So if you've never read it, any you or anyone in your audience, I highly recommend it. Um, the main, one of the main things that I drew from that book was this domino effect. So each domino can not only knock over a domino, it's same size, but one and a half times its size. So, you know, yeah. so it's a, it's a metaphor for, for what you should prioritize. Um, because if you're working on the third domino and your, your first domino hasn't fallen over, it's going to take forever to get that domino to fall. Yeah. So as an example, back then for me, it was get a proof of concept of the product built, get some people to sign up and pay for it. That was my number one validations. Like somebody has to be willing to pay for it. Otherwise I don't go, I don't got squat. My wife would tell me, Oh, this is so cool. You're getting lots of good feedback. I'm like, well, until somebody gives me their money, I don't really have any good feedback. Yeah. <laughs> So, but once, once I got that, I thought, okay, then I can use that to get a good team together. Once I have a good team together and some good traction, then I can raise money. And that was all going really well for about a year until, um, also another book I read during that time was nail it, then scale it. Hmm. Um, also a good read. Um, we thought we had nailed it. We hadn't nailed it, but we, we tried scaling and, uh, and we did scale for a little bit, but we have, 
uh, annual software contracts and churn started to happen. It's hard yeah. to anticipate what churn will be when you've got a one-year contract. Churn started yeah. to happen. We didn't know what was happening, why it was happening. Um, anyway, long story short, that was a couple of years into the journey. Um, you know, then we've been through this long pivot. I liken it to the the children of Israel in the wilderness wandering around for yeah. 40 years, trying to figure out where we're supposed <laughs> to be. Um, but but yeah, it was it was really about lining up these dominoes. Um, and then we got the funding we wanted. Clerk got to a series A and um, everything was cranking. And then it all didn't, I wouldn't say it fell apart, but man, we had to go through layoffs. We went through all kinds of hardship. And then we finally got to the right pivot. Now we're scaling again. I think this time the right way. <laughs> yeah, dang. There's there's definitely lots of breakdown there, Garen. We can we can dive deep into some of those. Uh, later on, but I want to bring up the the initial product because I'm confused about exactly how that works with the customers and what makes it so intriguing and how on the back end it works with developing and how you you know pump it out to to potential clients and whoever yeah. you know is li it's licensed out to. So on my end, I'm um I want you to explain how that product works and what what you code to make it work for your customers or how you got the idea out onto the computer and then it works for your clients. Like, what does that look like? And what I'm thinking of too, if this isn't too long winded, I interviewed uh, Daniel Harmon of Harmon Brothers who produces these ads for, oh, yeah. for you know, poopery and their viral ads. And I, I heard you talk yeah. about the, and like an almost an internal virality where it's not yeah. like it's a huge video, but it's just, it's really connectable between this inner group of people in a business. So is it similar to what Daniel Harmon does where you produce videos or is it more of taking this singular, here's the demo that we have, but you just take certain aspects of that product and then there's artificial intelligence that aggregates what that person is most interested in. How does it work? What are, what, are, what is the goal with, with the product? Is it the, the Daniel Harmon way, or is it more like pulling out what they're most interested in and then just presenting that to them? What is, what does that whole scope and product look like from beginning to end with the client? Based on his description of the product that he has, I really asked this question just because I was curious on how the back end of all that worked. What went into making that? Because it was kind of an ambiguous. I was a little confused on when he was explaining exactly how he profits from what he does, what the, the software is of his company. So the, the origin of this question was quite literally to understand exactly how his business functions, what goes into the product, how it even was made, what was the goal behind it, and kind of uncovering that and then seeing if there's anything we can kind of take out of how to build a product that is so niched in a way. You know what I mean? This isn't a huge be all solve all for businesses it's just a really singular one-dimensional product that does one thing it helps customers you know convert better because they're being presented information to them in a demo that's more relevant to their needs and you know that really is one-dimensional it's super super simple and i just wanted to know how that exactly unfolded with his business and how he scaled that and i hope that that was I hope that that would be his explanation is describing that process for us. Uh, so the, the main problem that our software addresses is uh, in the business to business sales cycle. So first of all, that's, that's important. Yeah. We don't really sell B2B. to B2C. 
but we sell to other B2B companies. And in that business B2B process, buyers want a demo of the software product, um, but they want different levels of demo. So at the beginning, yeah. they want a brief demo and then they want a deeper dive. And it's not only one buyer, to your point, there are six to seven people that usually get involved to make a purchase decision. And so you demo and then you demo again and then you demo again and again. And so what we're trying to do is compress that sales cycle by sharing a what we call intraviral um, asset, which is our, our yeah. demo automation platform so that they can share it with others inside their company. And no, it's not viral like, oh, it's going to get millions of views on yeah. YouTube, but it can become viral inside the stakeholder group. So as an example, um, I'm actually closing a deal right now with Siemens, which is a large a huge company. And uh, they started out watching our demo. Then this main director of pre-sales in Asia Pacific sent it to one of his colleagues and they shared it with some others. And pretty soon in, in a few days, it was shared with 25 different people inside the organization. Yeah. And these are all the key stakeholders that have to get involved in one way or another to make the purchase happen. So the way that the reason it um, is personalized or how it personalizes is just like a real um, salesperson or sales engineer, it's going to ask questions. It does some discovery. So yeah. it asks you these questions, what's driving your interest, what's most important, what's somewhat important, what's not important to you. And it actually pulls together dynamically these little video clips and documents based on, uh, and that's just a patented method, that, and it pulls this together in the back end um, to feed a, you know, a, a nice package that's perfectly tailored to your interests. Yeah. And, and the cool thing about that is because everybody answers those questions differently, um, you can look at what we call the demolytics and it will show you all of the different ways that those different people uh, may align or misalign in what's driving their oh. interest before you even talk to them. That's interesting. Wow. So, yeah. so kind of going along with that, it seems technical, right? So in my mind, what I want to ask at this phase is when you did get this started, when you did oh, yeah. create this product and obviously you're getting feedback and you know, your first client came along and this time, how did you find the, like the CTO, the, the, the person, people to build it. Yeah. The people that are behind this whole thing. What are the, how'd you find the minds behind this? Was it you or was it kind of your, uh, university friends back in the day? Was it people that yeah. you've already worked with? How did you go about finding that, the, the code from this question? Obviously I still want to know more about the product, the software that he sells and how that came about. What, what's the story behind that? I just want to know a little bit more. So I did the initial wireframe. So I'm still the product's principal designer okay. and I still really focused on UX, UI, stuff like that. But, um, back then I just, I, I started with pencil and paper. So I have a little folder. I just mm -hmm. get away from the computer and I sit and stay focused and just draw sketches, right? So you draw some sketches, show them to some people, uh, if you get some feedback, draw some better sketches. And then, and then I would get them mocked up into more and more higher fidelity sketches until I had yeah. a graphic artist actually sketch them up as if they look like real software. So then I'd put them in a PowerPoint kind of deck, a Google slide deck, and then uh, show them that way. And it would be this little prototype that would feel yeah. like software, even though it really wasn't software. So at that point, it was just me and a graphic artist, right? And that's where I got most of my validation. But once I, I talked to, I cold called 30, oh, like I cold called about a hundred um, companies and wow. I got 30 of them to respond. 
And 29 of them said, if this was here today, I would buy it. I was like, that's what? a pretty good response rate. Wow. Yeah. So, um, so based on that, I thought I need to start building this, right? So it's enough to at least build the first version, but I had a very limited amount of budget that I wanted to spend to get to a certain point. So at that point, I just found some developers on Upwork, actually in Bolivia. Oh, no way. Are you familiar with Upwork? Yeah, yeah. 100%. Yeah, so, yeah, so Upwork. So I found a couple guys in Bolivia, um, and they built out the first version. Um, in hindsight, that was a mistake. No. Uh, it was good because they moved quickly. It was bad because they didn't know how to build software in a maintainable way. And I wasn't giving enough attention, and, and I didn't have anyone overseeing that. So, the, so what happened, the good side was they moved quickly. We built stuff. That was great. We got customers. The bad side was when we got enough customers, everything started yeah. breaking. Yeah. Get all the technical. <laughs> so, huh. but yeah, that's, that's how I got the technical side. Um, and then eventually started hiring, you know, our own team and, and phase yeah. those guys eventually. Yeah. Yeah. So, so Garen, to kind of move on in the process of consensus and, and this journey, uh, from what we talked about, obviously it's the beginning phases. What was the next checkpoint that you can remember of the scale in consensus? Tell us when this was, what was going on, and why this was a checkpoint for for the business. Well, I think it's we could talk about two points of scale. One was, uh, and, and we're still in the in the process of sort of our second yeah. curve here. So, but the first curve uh, really happened. Scale, scale almost always happens when you find out what's keeping you from scaling and mm. fixing that problem, right? Because there's always something inhibiting yeah. you from scaling. So once you figure out what those are, and back then we were selling to marketers of small business. That was our main target audience. And what was keeping us from getting deals done quickly was they, they didn't know how to build videos. Um, so we thought, mm. well, uh, third guy I sold to, he's like, I don't... I don't know how to build these videos. And I said, well, we have these partners you could go work with and whatever. Hmm. And he said, okay, well, maybe I'll get back to you. And I said, um, so the next guy I talked to, I see when he said, I don't know how to build video. I said, well, we do that for you. And we had never done it before, but um, <laughs> I said, we do that for you. He's like, how much? I said this much. He goes, okay, done deal. And he's, you know, signs <laughs> the contract. I was like, okay, so now we got to go make this video. So we ended up, that was the barrier in that initial model was building out the videos. To yeah. getting set. Hmm. So we, we fixed that. The, there were problems that, that caused churn. Um, and it turned out to be when, when you're scaling that whole model and you've got several hundred customers and they're all buying video, you got to have a pretty robust video production team, which we did. True. But uh, then you got to keep the clients um, focused and, and many of them wouldn't. And they wouldn't get their content. If they didn't get their content early enough, they would lose, they get distracted and they would drop off. Yeah. So, but that, that was that first point of, point of, um, scale, uh, in terms of just what's the mix of product and pricing, packaging services yeah. that, that actually work for the target. Huh. Uh, but now what we do, uh, we, 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 then, we have now pivoted away from marketing and small business to, um, sales engineers in larger businesses. So mm. focus on the people who normally do demos in large complex software offerings. Mm. Um, and so we, we mostly focus on companies that have 200 employees or more. Um, and we have, you know, we're selling to some of the biggest companies in the world now. And so the, the thing there was they needed tools to build it themselves. Yeah. Um, 
So once we were able to put the tools in place to help them build it themselves, they were the types of people that could build. And once that was in place, then, and we got the right messaging, we, we pivoted to that target audience. Yeah. That's when we started to scale again. But it took us a while. It took us literally two and a half years to figure out who that audience yeah. was, what kinds of stuff they needed, and everything. So once we figured that out, that that mix uh, is is what helped. So so now you sell to those those salespeople, right? So just so I'm getting the story right, you uh, the process of the company now is you're the resources for these sales teams and salespeople in these companies to create these demos for their company, correct? Right. So we provide the software to help them build it and yeah. track it. Yeah. And then this, do you still implement the video that you talked about in this phase? Like, do they still have that access to video that you guys, do you guys still do video do for no, not, at all. not anymore? So, no. so I guess kind of something I want to touch on with that, going back to that, when you decided yeah. you wanted to build videos, how did you get that infrastructure set up? Like in the, in, in the beginning, when you made that first video for the client, yeah. how did you set up that whole infrastructure and build a team? Walk us through that whole process of getting that video done for the first client. How did you do that? Well, the first client, we just grabbed some tools online and built it ourselves. So they're, they're tools that will make whiteboard videos and yeah. other like Powtoons. And I can't even remember the whiteboard video app that we used, but there were there's little tools like that. And oh, we just started okay. using those. Because we didn't, we weren't video people, but we had to produce yeah. video. And by video, it was in motion graphics and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. But eventually, uh, we had a team of I don't know, twenty or thirty writers and editors and video videographers and motion yeah. graphic artists and all this stuff. And we just we we mostly built that out through uh, through Upwork. We had four or five full time people on the team, and then we had a bunch of contractors. Um, mm -hmm. So it was, yeah, we had a scalable service. I was actually quite proud of it, even though it didn't yeah. really help our business in the end. But we we applied uh, agile development methodologies from software development to video building. So huh. uh, yeah, that's how that came about. That's interesting. It's, it's funny how that sort of stuff is implemented, and then in the end, it, it just kind of fades away and, and it moves on. Yeah. It's it's interesting how entrepreneurship and businesses like that. But that's kind of the fun of it, I guess, for, for people that engage in it and these entrepreneurs, but, but Garen kind of, <laughs> I don't know if I'd always call it fun, but it yeah, is, yeah. <laughs> it's interesting. Let me put it that way. It's, it's an adventure. Adventures are not always fun, but they're never boring. <laughs> they're never boring. I mean, that's, I guess, yeah, there, there you go. There you go. Um, but Garen, going back to the beginning, I want to, you said that there was a, there was a time in, in consensus where you felt like you were the, the Nephites that were stranded in the, in the desert. If I'm, <laughs> Israelites. The Israelites, the Israelites. <laughs> um, so this phase, obviously, it sounds like it was in, in the middle. You know, you had been running it for a couple of years and then you kind of lost. Uh, I don't, don't quote me on this, but you kind of lost like where you were going and you were you didn't know exactly where you should pivot in this. We knew where we were going, but it turned out to be the wrong way. It's like okay. if you know you're driving towards a cliff, should you drive faster or should you slow down and make a turn? <laughs> yeah. Huh. But then when you, you say, I know where I'm not supposed to go, well, where am I supposed to go, right? So we make the big turn. Uh, yeah, and so it was really yeah. about, um, you know, we could have kept trying to grow that way, but it just kept being slower and slower growth because we had all this drag from yeah. problems with product market fit, ultimately. We thought we had great product sure. market fit because everyone was buying our software, but not enough were renewing. 
and that ultimately is not good product market fit. But we didn't, yeah. you know, it's hard. We didn't learn that early enough. So, so Garens, to make this practical too for for the listeners, I want to know from your experience because you've gone through this. If someone, a young entrepreneur, is going through this, their business is working. People are buying their product, but it's not like it's 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 not working out in the long term. Kind of like you you just stated. If they're in that position, they have a company that's in that position where they know it yeah. might not be right scaling this way. They've got to take that turn to make sure that this is a long-term thing that, that goes where they want to go and not just die out in a couple of years. What do you tell them to practice if they're in that position? What, what should they do? What should they be attentive of? How should they yeah. be thinking? What do you have to say to those people if they're in that same position when you realize that's where you were at? What do you say to them? Well, I could spend a whole hour just talking about that, <laughs> but I'm afraid to, because I have a lot to say, because I, you know, in both companies, I went through periods of uh, where I, it seemed like the business was going to completely fail. Yeah. Uh, and in both companies, literally at certain points uh, early on, we, we came within just a few weeks of running out of cash. I mean, literally. Wow. So there are a couple of things that I'll say to that. One, when you know something is wrong, don't wait. Hmm. You got to fix it. Even if you have to lay off people, even if you have to disappoint clients, whatever it is, the longer you wait when something is is not working, you're just going to create more problems yeah, for yourself. Yeah, the more it right? gets worse. So yeah. It's hard because none of us want to do that. It's hard to face it. We all want to live in a little mm-hmm. denial, thinking that somehow it'll just, we'll work it, our way out of it. But the reality is most of the time, if something's not working, you got to pull back and fix it before you can you know, push on it again. True. So that's, that's one of the things. Another thing is more philosophical, and that is emotions are just emotions. There are going to be days when you think, why did I do this? This is stupid. Um, it's not working. I'm not cut out for this. Yeah. Uh, and uh, there's a great book called um, by Ben Horowitz called... Uh, the hard thing about hard things. Mm, that's I a good one. Something like that. Anyway, he talks about managing your own psychology. And um, and for me, that's been the biggest challenge going through those periods because what will tank your company fastest is not the problems in your company, it's the problems in your head. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So I think you have to try to um, realize. So I'll give an example. It's really from my previous company, but it's a very stark. Um, example that I think will help your audience. Um, we were at a period where we didn't have any funding. It was all bootstrapped. We we had won every innovation award in our industry, but we mm-hmm. saw competitors catching up to us because we weren't funded well. And I was on this, uh, actually talking with a blogger one day. He's like, oh, tell me why your product and your company is so great. And, it, and I just barely got off a call and lost my biggest customer. No and way. Uh, and and I had right after that call with that customer, I had to get on with this blogger and tell him why we we were so awesome, you know. <laughs> and I remember when he said, "Tell us, you know, how you're different. What's what's your special sauce?" And I remember in my mind thinking, "We've got crap. There's nothing. We're, we are so bad. We are so lame. We're never gonna win." This is what was going through my head. <laughs> oh man! And and yet I had to come up with something. And I don't even remember what I said. But my the point is not what I said to that blogger. The point is that as bad as I felt that day. 18 months later, we sold that company for millions of dollars to another sure. company, to a public company. 18 months. So the thing is, you can't trust your emotions, either positive or negative. They're just, they're not trustworthy, meaning 
just because you're afraid or everything, everything looks like you're going to go out of business or that you're going to fail doesn't mean you'll actually fail. It's just an emotion, right? Now you yeah. have to pay attention to the actual data and not ignore it, but your feelings don't matter. You can feel like garbage and still make your successful, your company successful. In fact, you will mm. have to work hard on days you feel like garbage, right? But the other thing is on the flip side, on days that you feel euphoric, it's like, oh man, I just closed that great deal. I mean, that doesn't necessarily mean we had all, we had many days of those when we were scaling at first, got our Series A, raised five, eight, you know, six, seven million dollars, and it's like that's a lot of euphoria. But we didn't, we hadn't solved our problems yet. But we didn't, yeah. we didn't see we were driving towards a cliff, right? Hmm. So, so the main message right there is don't trust your emotions, just keep working at it. Um, and of course, yeah. you know, you, eventually, if you don't have, if you just can't solve it, there's no way. But I mean, this was a two and a half year pivot for us. So it can sometimes take a long time and you just got to hang in there, yeah. manage your cash, whether it's just you and your personal cash or yeah. your cash with your, your team, right? Make sure you oh. have time to figure it out. So, so Garen, just a pop-up question that I just barely had based on what you just said before we move into just some of the latter questions in the interview. Um, so you said the two-year pivot was how long it, it took in your business. So in your mind... Obviously, there's a question for young entrepreneurs that if they don't know for sure, they're always saying, when is patience enough and when does that turn into delusion? When does that turn into yeah, you're just so banging your head against the wall because <laughs> you're not listening to data or you're, or you're just not cut out for this because like, you really aren't because it's not working and you really just don't know. Like, When does that yeah. patience and that persistence turn into delusion and how do we mitigate that in a, in a business? What, what do you say to that? No, I really think that this is the question of this whole show, literally, because this is kind of the make or break or the, the thing that makes an entrepreneur a successful entrepreneur in a way. When is hardship like just redundant and you're beating your head against the wall? Like this question literally... I don't think anybody can really answer because it might be personalized. It might have this own personal twist based on what you're doing as an entrepreneur in my mind. But, you know, this question kind of, Garen led me to this through what he said. And I just like, hey, might as well shoot it out and then get his opinion. And I don't think I've asked this question on this show before, but it really is a serious question. So asking this, I was like, this is going to be a good one because I think and I believe that a lot of these entrepreneurs face this when things are not going very well for years and years do we stop because this won't keep working just save some time or do we be resilient and and push through and see where it goes like this is a real dilemma and i think that garen he'd have some some good input based on the experiences he's been through with a with a drive with a dry phase sounds like for for a couple of years and yeah, so honestly, I'm, I was excited to ask this, and once I was done asking, I was like, all right, let's see what, see what Karen said. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if I really have a good answer for that one, but yeah. uh, I'll it's share some thoughts anyway. It is. It's a really, really <laughs> great question, and I would say you have to see data points, right? Yeah. Um, you got to have at least some data points to, and, and here's the other thing is trust your gut. Um, and now, I'm just telling you, don't ignore your emotions, trust your gut. What does that mean? Well, my gut the last three years have told me that we had something special and we just had to figure out yeah. how the pro right product market fit was. But I had horrible days 
uh, uh, you know, emotional days, but, um, but we had data points, you know, we would get a customer that was using it in a certain way. And I'm thinking that's different from what we're doing. That's interesting. And we, yeah. we'd see positive, even though we see tons of customers leaving, we'd get at the same time, we'd close IBM. And I'm like, huh, we close an IBM, but all the customers leaving, what's going on here? Yeah. Right. If everyone's leaving and you don't have any positive data points at all, well, then maybe you're delusional. Yeah. Right. So you got to have some, but, but, but so, sometimes those were such little in comparison. Maybe I have a massive exodus of customers and we're getting a few of these data points. Sometimes it's easy to focus on all those bad data points and ignore the good ones. Hmm. But, but those were, you know, those are important. Um, but, but I think you do have to have some data points, but I, but I also think if you've been in it for a while, you got to trust your, trust your, your real gut. And if you're not sure, get some outside input too. You know, I mean, there's nothing, it doesn't hurt to get other people uh, to take a look at it. Yeah. And by the way, on that note, uh, venture capital investors are, can be helpful in that way because they'll usually talk to anybody and they'll try to poke holes in everything you do. Sure. Um, so it's not a bad way to try to get some outside input. Yeah, 100%. And, and Garen, so the other question that I wanted to ask you was about Upwork and obviously the the people that work for you remotely. And I'm sure, I'm not sure um, if people work for you remotely now, but obviously you have experience with with people that are employed not having to come into your, your main headquarters. So for a younger entrepreneur confused about that aspect of a business, knowing that you've gone through that, how would you recommend that these people go about optimizing each remote employee? Do they, is there a certain mm -hmm. screening process that they should do uh, personally, not through Upwork? Or how, how would you recommend that they do that if they have to, if that comes up in their business and they, they actually need that? What is the correct way, the most successful way that you've seen or you'd recommend to these people if that's the case? Yeah, first of all, I'm a strong, really strong believer in remote work. Um, obviously, everybody's working remotely at this very moment. <laughs> We're in the middle of the COVID-19 thing. <laughs> but we actually left our office about three years ago and went fully remote. Um, oh, wow. So Yeah, so we've been fully remote. Um, and and we, we do use uh, a WeWork office. Um, and we rent some yeah. of their some of their space to meet in sometimes. So that's, a you know, meet with clients and investors and things. So I'll, I'll say this first, that I think you can get really great talent from anywhere in the world. And, you know, if you manage time zones well, you can get better cost structures. We moved our entire hmm. development team over to Eastern Europe and they were wow. less expensive and better developers and easier to work with than the development team that we, we had hired here in Utah. Okay. So that, that was a difficult move at the time, but I'm really glad we did it because, um, yeah, those developers over there are incredible. So, yes, yeah, so we have, we have people here. We have people in Utah. We have people in Texas. We have people in Eastern Europe. We've got people in the Philippines. Um, so how do you effectively get remote workers and screen them? So on Upwork in particular, never ever publish a job application. I mean, a job announcement to the public. You've got to huh. search and narrow it down. Otherwise you just get tons of garbage. You get hundreds of people yeah. just asking to be, be interviewed and you'll spend your, all your days interviewing people that are not fit for your position so, but upwork has this great way of just filtering down i can usually filter it down to 10 to 15 key potential you know with great skills and then i just invite them have a phone interview or a zoom interview and um and then i actually run them through a project so i'll say i'm going to hire you for two weeks and 
I'll put them on a project. And if that too, and then you get, you really get to see how they work. And if they work out yeah. well, then you hire them full time. Huh? That's interesting. So, so kind of a, another breakdown question with this Upwork uh, stuff. What, what did it look like? Uh, really in depth of how you moved uh, the team from Utah uh, over to Eastern Europe with the with the developers. How how did that whole process work? What was the how did that work time wise? Was it like a month or two? And how, how is there a way that you found these people, or were they all just in Eastern Europe by by chance when you narrowed it down? Like talk about kind of the the behind the scenes stuff yeah. that we wouldn't see or wouldn't hear, and how that all worked and how you accomplished that. Well, you know how I said I hired these guys in Bolivia yeah. early on? So right during that time, I had some friends. Um, so uh, Andrew Sivoli, who runs eLearning Brothers, had mm. used some um, developers in Eastern Europe, um, in Belarus, actually, to do some work. And so when I started Consensus, I had put together these wireframes and was trying to build the first version. And I actually put it out to bid to these two groups, these two guys in Bolivia and this group in, in Eastern Europe. Oh, okay. And I really should have gone with that group in Eastern Europe because that's who we've, we eventually went with. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so that's, that's how I got to know him was just referred to me um, okay. by, by you know, other entrepreneurs. But uh, we didn't work with them for four years. Uh, I got to know them back then a little bit. Then we came back and said, hey, we're thinking we want to move away from local developers. It just got too expensive here in Utah. I mean, it went crazy. Yeah. We were struggling financially as a company and we would hire someone at top rates and they'd take another job three months later at some other company. It just became really intractable position. So, so we actually, yeah, we, we transitioned everything over. We hired that team in, in uh, it's a firm over in, Belarus, and there are lots of them that you can look up in Eastern Europe. Yeah. Uh, it's actually one of the best places in the world for technology services right now. Wow. So, um, yeah, and we we made that transition. We laid off the team, kept a couple of our own developers to help transition, um, and just threw them all in the deep end. And Maybe. they picked it up pretty quickly, and it was a difficult time, really difficult. But, yeah, we made it through. Yeah, it's always, yeah. It's always interesting because you have these shifts in business, and then you also have to still help your clients while you're shifting the business. And so it's kind of like yeah. a crazy juggling five balls at once, but somehow it always ends up working if you just put the time in and really understand where you're going. So Garen, one of the last questions due to obviously everything that's going on, I want to ask uh, my guests that I'm having on this certain question uh, with the virus going on, COVID-19 obviously, and how it's affecting business how it's affecting the economy and everybody working at home and you hear all these things and so what i want to ask is how you combat this with your 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 business and then how you'd recommend if uh if a young entrepreneur sees this sees something like this happen again or the economy kind of goes into this recession-like period what what you'd recommend for them to prepare and make sure that they make it through with their business and them and themselves and all that good yeah. stuff so what do you have to say to all that well I'll, I'll first say that you know i'm uh i'm as perplexed by as anyone by how quickly everything changed in the world so we'll see how long this lasts Couple but weeks bam. <laughs> I, you know, I was thinking about how just at christmas time everything was fine world seemed so normal and, and here we are <laughs> not even three months later i guess it's now three months later exactly today yeah. And here we are three months later, and I would have never, ever believed that that quickly. Literally. You know, it's not that Literally. I never believed anything like this could happen, but I didn't think it could happen this fast. Oh, yeah. So, 
pretty crazy. But going back to managing your own psychology is number one, I think. True. Um, I, I actually devote, I, for a long time, I've devoted time to physical health, like get up and exercise, try to eat well, at least as much as you can, that kind of stuff. But about a year ago, I started doing that for mental health. Like I actually do things, I try to write uh, something I'm thankful for every day, at least once, something. Um, I try to do an act of service for somebody, just any small thing, you know. Yeah. Um, I believe in God, so I try to spend time communing with him. I think that's important. If you have a spiritual belief system, make sure to spend time doing that. It strengthens yeah. the inner self, right? So um, those are those are key things. When it comes to the business, uh, so I guess I'll say everything about that is just put yourself first in the sense yeah. of like take care of your own mental state, your spiritual, your physical state, because that gives you the energy mm -hmm. to do other stuff. Yeah, it um, gives you so much more. Yeah. So on the business side, um, man, I'd be watching cash like a hawk. I mean, and I am. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, we've got, yeah, there's lots of things to, to, to look at, but mm. look at cash. Don't be too slow to let people go if you have to make it temporary or, you know, ideas that, that I've, I've actually done in the past or people have suggested is instead of laying off five people, give everybody a 20% pay cut for a month and see yeah. if you can keep the whole thing together. You know, it's, it, it's unprecedented territory as far as the, the entire world seems to be in this issue. It's not one sector, but, um, but I would say be realistic. But the other thing I'll say is that uh, recessions are some of those places that spawn the best opportunities for innovation because there, there's so many problems and people need innovative ways to solve them because they don't they can't afford all the old ways so it should be a time of great optimism for anyone who's innovative and, and wants to figure figure out a, a business that will work because yeah. there are all kinds of new problems surfacing that's true i think that's a that's a good take on it too is you should look for the opportunities and not kind of what's going against you it's definitely the cup half full or cup half empty kind of mentality there but it really is beneficial i think what you said is really applicable to everybody and garen that's all that I had for you i think we're well over our time here but if you just want to give us a shout out to yourself where we can find you and then we can say goodbye yeah well thanks josh it's been great um if anyone wants to reach me i you can check out more about our business at goconsensus.com and uh, learn about interactive video demo automation there. Um, if you want to reach me, uh, best way is just by email, Garen, that's G-A-R-I-N at goconsensus.com. So love to chat with any of your audience. Sweet. All right, guys. Uh, Garen at goconsensus.com. And then goconsensus.com is where you can find his business. Garen, thanks so much for coming out on the show. It's been a pleasure, man. Okay. Thank you, Josh. Good luck with everything. Special. Guys, thanks for tuning into the show. I want to remind you to subscribe, rate, review the show if you like it so I can reach more people. Obviously, follow my Instagram so you can see what I post with the podcast. Other than that stuff, check out the YouTube, the show notes of the link. Um, you'll see the YouTube channel there. You can check out the actual video of me and Garen if you'd like. Uh, but other than that stuff, I'll see you guys on the next one.